Welcome to Creeps and Crime Storytime. My name is Charlie and this week we're going to be getting straight in to the second part of the story of Jodie Who's in Truth. For a quick refresh, Jodie was a newscaster in Mason City, Iowa and anchored the local morning news on KIMT. She was a beloved local celebrity and she would welcome people into the start of their new day every morning in the early 90s. However, this would all change when on the 27th of June 1995, Jodie would vanish and no trace of her has ever been found. Jodie was clearly leaving for work in the pre-dawn hours and the evidence of her scattered belongings and bent car key suggests that she was ambushed and abducted while walking the 12 paces from her front door to her car. Last week, I asked everyone to walk 12 paces to see just how little distance that is. We all have to be careful, especially women and female presenting people. 12 paces is all it takes. The investigation started immediately. Police arrived at the scene as soon as she was reported missing by her colleagues at the news station. And when they found evidence strewn around the parking lot, it was immediately obvious what had happened. Police entered Jodie's apartment and found nothing massively amiss, although people have debated the importance of the toilet seat being left up and a hastily made bed. The drag marks in the dirt by her car, however, gave a far clearer picture of the intentions of Jodie's abductor. Police didn't fuck around when it came to interviewing and canvassing the neighbourhoods for witnesses to anything suspicious. Not only was Jodie beloved and everyone wanted to find her, but because she was so popular, the entire community was suddenly watching the police to make sure they did their jobs properly. Many residents in the key apartment buildings where Jodie lived were fast asleep when Jodie left around 4am and didn't have a clue that anything nefarious had happened so close to where they and their families were sleeping and vulnerable in their beds. However, at least three of Jodie's neighbours were awake at the time, and they reported to the police that they did hear screams. They didn't realise it was Jodie, and none of them called the police themselves. It's always really frustrating when you listen to a true crime podcast, or watch a documentary, or read an article, when you hear about witnesses hearing screams or strange noises and not doing anything. But then, if you think about it, how many times have you heard someone scream and done nothing? I suppose some of you will have never heard a random scream, it depends on where you live. If you hear one scream and then nothing, it's easy to write it off as someone messing around, or something that's not serious. And it is also important to remember that the bystander effect is a real thing. Most of the time, humans will wait for someone else to take care of it. There's always someone else that knows better, or someone who's more capable of doing something about it. One of these neighbours is Rose Tobin, She actually manages the key apartments. She said that she heard a scream, which was shortly followed by the sound of an engine being revved up. I mean, this is pretty black and white. If she really did hear this, and there's no reason for her to lie, this sounds like she basically heard Jodie being abducted and the vehicle speeding off. This is what happened. There was also a married couple who lived in the apartments, the Walshers. They heard a woman yelling for help. They told police that they assumed that someone was messing around in the park nearby and it wasn't actually anyone in danger. A guy there called Vic also heard shouts for help and screams from the parking lot. Hearing all of these accounts together is incredibly frustrating. I can't imagine what it's like screaming for help, screaming for your life because you're desperately in need of it. And having people actually hearing you and just writing it off as nothing. And if you think about it, it's terrifying. So I'm only going to think about it a little bit and then try not to think about it anymore. Later on in the afternoon that Jodie disappeared, after her own colleagues at the news station had reported on her disappearance on the midday news broadcast, the story went to the radio. A Mason City resident by the name of Randy Linderman was driving and heard the radio broadcast and realised that he actually might have seen something important, so he called in a tip to the police. In 2019, in an interview with the Find Jody podcast, Randy said, I saw a white van parked in the parking area 
having gone down that road many times, I'd never seen it there before. If I had to say a time, I'd probably say around 3.50, end quote, and that's 3.50 in the morning. In the 90s, and in other early accounts, this sighting is marked as being closer to 4.30 than 3.50, so we can't be exactly sure what time Randy had this sighting. It's been a long time and memories fade and change, but either way, it was definitely in the very early hours, somewhere between 10 to 4 and half past 4 in the morning. So let's get into this tip in a bit more detail. Randy lived in the area and he actually lived super close to Jodie herself. In fact, he lived only about a quarter of a mile down the road from her apartment. And he knew her from the news, he watched her every morning. But he didn't realise just how local she was until she went missing and heard about it on the radio. Randy worked at Winnebago Industries, which was in nearby Forest City, and took him about 40 minutes to commute to work every day. This commute took him past the key apartments, and he would drive by every morning without realising that the popular news anchor lived right there. He told police that earlier that morning, when he was driving past, he noticed a white Ford Econoline van parked in front of the apartment building. It was facing towards the entrance of the parking lot. This might not seem like an important detail, but if you think about it, if you wanted to make a quick escape from somewhere, you'd park up facing the direction you needed to leave in. I mentioned in last week's episode about Scott Fuller and his work with Find Jody, and on the website there's a really good graphic of where Randy says he saw this van, so do check that out, have a look at it. If Randy, um, sorry, if this van was used to abduct Jodie, the way it was parked and the way it faced would have meant it could have driven right out of the parking lot in a straight shot. Randy didn't recognise the van, which stood out to him as he drove by every single day. Initially, when he was approaching, he thought it was a police car, and then he realised that it wasn't, it was an unmarked white van. It was too early in the day for it to be workmen doing work on the building, and he couldn't see anyone inside, but he said the front parking lights were on, but the headlights were off. Apart from the uh, apart from the 30-minute or so variation of the timing, his account of the van has never changed, and Randy has always been certain of what he saw. The police took this tip really seriously, and pretty soon they heard from at least one other person that the evening before, the evening of June 26th, a white van had been seen around the area. Scott with the Fine Jody podcast also did another interview with a witness who wanted to remain anonymous, only being referred to as Connie. She lived directly across the road from Jody, and she recalls seeing a white van parked on the street around the time Jody was abducted. Not in the parking lot, in the street. She is certain that the van was parked on the road by the apartment complex. Connie knows that it was sometime after 4am as she remembers seeing the 4 on her clock, but she is uncertain of exactly what time it was. She looked outside and saw the light-coloured van and didn't think much of it. She didn't see anyone inside or around the van. She got back into bed and started to fall asleep, and as she was nodding off, she heard a car door close. Scott Fuller asked her if it was a car door closing or a sliding van door, and Connie is sure that it was a car door, not a sliding van door. She fell asleep very shortly after, and when she got up to start her day two hours later, the van wasn't there anymore. Scott hypothesises on findjody.com that the door Connie heard closing could have been the rear door of the van. This also could have been the driver or the passenger doors at the front. Nobody knows for sure whether or not this van has anything to do with Jodie's abduction, but many people, including me, find it strange that at least two reports of a van have been made at that location on that day at that time. My personal opinion, which doesn't count for very much, obviously, is that the van was used in Jodie's abduction. I think the van started out on the road, parked where Connie saw it. I think the driver then assessed his positioning, 
and yes, I'm going to assume that this is a male person who abducted Jodie, and then realised that it would be easier from inside the parking lot. I think he got into the van and closed the door, this being the noise that Connie heard. Then she fell asleep, the person moved the van, then had it parked up inside the parking lot ready to go. Engine running, parking lights on, and headlights off. Then, Randy drove by and saw it. Then Jody came out for work, she was snatched, and the van drove away, never to be seen again. In the book Dead Air, author Beth Bednar talks about a neighbour who lived in the apartment directly across from Jody. I take this to mean that this neighbour literally lived in the apartment opposite, not like across the road. I don't think this witness is Connie, I think that this is someone else. She has reported that sometime in the same week as Jodie's disappearance, she can't remember the exact day, she left for work around half five in the morning, had forgotten something, and came back home to get it. She saw a white van in the apartment parking lot, just idling, and two men inside, one black and one white. She felt uneasy, so she turned around and went to work without the thing she'd forgotten, because this whole thing just gave her the heebie-jeebies. She didn't know what kind of van this was, and I haven't been able to find any other source for this other than Bednar's account in her book, so I can't say how legitimate it is. Another statement from a neighbour detailed how the night before Jodie vanished, someone came to visit her. This female neighbour isn't exactly sure what time it was, both 5pm and 9pm have been mentioned online, and in various media sources. The neighbour said that a man was loudly and aggressively knocking on Jodie's door, saying things like, Open up, I know you're in there. The neighbour thinks that at that time, Jodie was not actually home. Perhaps she was with John Van Syce watching the birthday tape? Or maybe she was actually home and just avoiding this person? Maybe it was still when she was at the golf event, if the time was closer to 5pm? Who knows? Anyway, this lasted for about five minutes and then the neighbour heard the man leave. Some people think that this event happened at 5pm and it was when Jodie was at the golf club, and that the knocking was John Van Syce looking for Jodie so he could have an excuse to spend time with her and watch the birthday tape. We know he would get a bit possessive over her, and it would make sense that he would be annoyed if he thought that she was inside and ignoring him. This is quite a popular belief, but again, this might not be true at all, and John Van Syce might have had nothing to do with the pounding on Jodie's door. Speaking of the golf tournament, several people in attendance there at the dinner afterwards told police that Jodie had mentioned to them that she was getting some weird phone calls, and she was actually considering changing her phone number soon. She also sent her friend Kelly Torfusen a letter a few days before she was taken, saying that she was worried she was being stalked and she was concerned for her safety. She felt like she was being watched. In a horrid twist of fate, Kelly received the letter on the 27th of June, and this is obviously the day that Jodie was abducted. Some residents of the key apartments have said that there was someone in a dark-coloured car who would loiter around and leave beer cans lined up in the parking lot. This would happen to the point where three people who lived there would complain about the litter in the car park, but after Jodie went missing, the cans would not reappear again. The person who left the beer cans and sat in their car for hours at a time would not come back to the apartments. This could be someone who enjoyed watching Jodie. This person could have been sitting in their car, drinking beer after beer, lining up their empties, just watching her apartment. Or... It could have been someone just sitting and drinking in a random parking lot, drinking away their problems, and the large police presence at the apartment after Jodie left made them change their drinking spot. Jodie actually made a phone call to the police in October 1994. She was jogging with a friend, and a man in a white pickup truck had been following them, slowing down to watch her. She asked the police how to protect herself, and according to some sources, she actually accepted a police escort to work on some occasions in the mornings. She also started attending self-defence classes put on by married couple Sonny and Julie Ono. Onu? Onu? Their last name is spelled O-N-O-O, so if I fucked it, I'm really sorry. Sonny recalls that Jodie was especially concerned about going to work early in the mornings in the dark, and he gave her some safety tips to try and ease her anxieties. 
This conversation happened in March, just a few months before her exact fear would come true. The truck that followed Jodie has been mentioned in the media on many different occasions as being black, but the police report filed by Jodie in 1994 that was shared by Find Jodie showed that Jodie told the police herself the truck was white. Getting stalked is obviously something Jodie was actively concerned about. And this isn't unwarranted. Stalking is horrifyingly more common than you'd think. Current statistics show that in the United States, one in every 12 women has been stalked at some point in their lives, and in the UK, the lifetime prevalence for being stalked is reported at 20.2% for women. And these figures are for the general population. Celebrities and public figures are going to be far more at risk, because they are far more seen and much more accessible. And Jodie was incredibly accessible. She was in people's homes on their TV every morning, but she also lived in the small town alongside her fan base, and her phone number and address were listed in the phone book. She had the same schedule every morning for getting to the news station. If someone wanted to stalk Jodie, and it looks like someone did, it would have been incredibly easy to do so. I found an amazing post on Reddit by the user JTigerTail, who mentioned that Amy Johnson, Jodie's co-worker from back when she worked at KGAN, had a stalker problem herself just two months before Jodie was taken. In April 1995, she was harassed by a man who thought she was sending out negative messages and radio frequencies about him on the air. He was caught by police and was remanded to a psychiatric facility. In addition addition to this, the year before Jodie was abducted saw Minnesota and Iowa-based female broadcasters become the targets of a series of awful phone calls. Four female local news reporters were harassed by phone, including Lee Geraminis, and she received many phone calls over a month-long period. During the calls, the male caller threatened to rape her, dismember her body, and send her severed head in the post to her boss at the station. Now, this might sound like this guy is a likely suspect, but he was imprisoned in April 1994, so he was in jail when Jodie was abducted. But it does show that this happens, and this sort of thing is kind of common, In an area as close to Jodie as this is, it was happening to multiple people in her professional at the same time. Jodie took her security more seriously by the time it became obvious to her that someone might be following her. But before this, Jodie was quite lax about her privacy. The small town vibes obviously made her feel very safe. Like we said in the last episode, she used to chat with all her viewers when she went grocery shopping, and she used to happily discuss her jogging routes live on the air. Two more stalkers were arrested shortly after Jodie vanished. Colleen King, who anchored the news in Twin Cities, was stalked by a man called Charles Allen Davison. He would watch her from the parking lot of her workplace and he would drive by her house, looking in her windows and over her fence. The police caught and arrested him as he was driving by her house, and he was arrested on August 17, 1995. The police obviously made the leap and thought that he might be good for Jodie's abduction, especially as he lived in Cedar Rapids at the same time. However, his car didn't match any vehicle description given by Jodie in the police report or any of the witnesses, and the police ruled him out as a suspect. I personally am not sure that just because he didn't have the same car, it means that he's not a suspect, but obviously the police know far more about this than I do, so I'm just going to say, okay. Several months later in December... Paul Bregelman would be arrested for stalking a Minneapolis-based weather reporter who worked for KARE. He had been watching her for a year, and he would take pictures of her from a distance, send her gifts, and he even showed up at her workplace. He was actually diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and he died in June 1996. Basically, this whole bit, I'm trying to say that there are so many creeps out there it very easily could be that Jodie was being stalked by someone who she didn't even know, a total stranger, and she was snatched by someone who wasn't in her life in a personal way. Or it might have been someone a little closer to home. I want to go back to John Van Sice, who I spoke about a little bit in the last episode. I think, personally, that he was a bit of a creepy guy, and I've made that clear. I've known creepy guys. I've known men who are entitled to you and 
they just they're just creepy and he's one of those creepy guys and being a creepy guy isn't illegal it's it's not a crime to be inappropriate and creepy and weird and entitled it's not so he might have never done anything illegal in his life but he gives me the creeps and he was possessive he would pick her up physically and touch her a lot in the birthday video you can see him glaring at her when she dances with other people there's accounts from her friends of him being pissed off when she socialized with other guys he put his own name on her birthday party invitations to get credit for organising the get-together. He definitely seemed obsessed with her, and not in a healthy, platonic way. He's super reclusive now and refuses to talk to anyone about Jodie's case. And if he is completely innocent of her abduction, I can see why. Many people think he had something to do with it. And if he had nothing to do with it, it must have been fucking awful for him. None of us can imagine what it must feel like to be hounded for 20 years for a crime you didn't commit, and losing one of your closest friends in the process. However, that being said, his timeline does not make sense at all. Not only does his timeline of the video viewing the night before end up all over the place, but his account of the morning Jody vanished is just as fucked up. And everyone who has an account of him that morning has a timeline that doesn't match up with his. So again, I've been on Reddit, a user called Sherlock Beaver, which is a fucking great username, did a really good timeline write-up three years ago and points out all the inconsistencies where John's version of events doesn't match up with the other people's. So I'll get into this a little bit. So, and like like the first time, this is really confusing, but let's just try our best. So on that morning, John's timeline that he gives contradicts three other people, two of his friends and a police officer. It's a bit hard to get into chronologically because there are so many places where it goes off the rails a bit, but I'm going to try. All of this is the day that Jodie goes missing, the 27th of June, and all of these things are things that either John says himself that he did or someone else has said that he told them he did. And all of these things cannot be true at once. So, from the top. 5am. When questioned by police as to his whereabouts, John told Detective Prochaska of the Mason City Police Department that he woke up to go for an early morning walk. So, he told police he went for a walk at 5am that day. 6am to 6.30am. His friend, LaDonna Woodford, goes for walks with him in the early morning very frequently and she said in an episode of Up and Vanished that between 6 and 6.30 a.m. that day she called him on the phone to arrange their regular walk and she woke him out of a dead sleep. She is 100% let me start again. She is 100% convinced that when she called him she had awoken him. She said that it would be super difficult for anyone to pretend to be that groggy. So, already we're at 6am and we've got two contradicting statements. He told police that he was out for a walk at 5am with no mention of a walking buddy and his walking buddy said that at 6am he was asleep in bed when she called him. So, let's continue. 6.45 to 7.45am. John and LaDonna were walking for an hour. LaDonna Woodford has said multiple things about this walk. She said that John didn't mention Jodie at all and didn't know she was missing. She said that John talked about Jodie, said that he was worried about her and cut the walk short to go and check on her. She also said that he did talk about Jodie, but in the past tense. She's also said that when she arrived at John's place to meet him first thing, he wouldn't let her in as he was finishing stuff up or doing something in the house that he didn't want her to see. A lot of people think that LaDonna is covering for John and they didn't actually walk that day. Interestingly, in Bednar's book, Dead Air, the author reports that John was scheduled to go for a walk with a female exercise buddy, but called to say that he wouldn't be able to meet her as per and didn't tell her why. This female exercise buddy is LaDonna Woodford. So why is she saying that she met him for a walk? And why give three different accounts on how this walk went? Either way, several people claim that they had interactions with John during the time he was supposedly walking with LaDonna. And let's get into those. 
7am, a witness who has always wanted to remain anonymous, who apparently worked with John, said that John called him on the phone and asked seemingly random questions about whether he was going to stick to his usual, usual schedule. The two guys like to meet at Casey's, which is a convenience store, and get breakfast together about 8am. This witness has made multiple statements about John that have always seemed a bit suspect, and we will get into those as we go along. 7.15am. Amy Coons at the station said that John called and asked whether or not Jodie was there. This is really important, in my opinion. Amy has absolutely no reason to make up this call. She doesn't know John, and she has no reason to make him look bad. If John was on the walk with LaDonna, like she says, how could these last two points have happened? 8am. John is a little late to meet his anonymous friend, and the first thing he says to his buddy is that Jodie is gone. The two drive to Jodie's apartment, where they meet police officers for the first time. It's important to note that John has not spoken to the police before this. If the 7.15am phone call to the studio did not happen, why would John know that Jodie hadn't shown up for work? And why would he call the studio, I mean, why would he call the, yeah, why would he call the station in the first place? Unless he watched the 6am news and saw Jodie wasn't there. But how could he have watched the broadcast if he was asleep on a morning walk at 5am or walking with LaDonna? Do you see what I mean? This is really messy and confusing and all over the place, and all of these things cannot be true. Also at 8am, John arrives and talks to the police. The police note that John is very emotional, and... Oh, I've made a typo here. Oh yeah, and Lieutenant Stearns of the Mason City Police Department describe him as being, quote, in a real excited manner, end quote. He hurries up to him and tells the officer that he was the last person to see Jodie alive. Why on earth is he talking about Jodie not being alive? How does he know he was the last person to see her? And what makes him think that Jodie not going to work means that she is no longer alive? Later that afternoon at 4.40, LaDonna Woodford said she heard on the radio that Jodie was missing. She calls John, who tells her that he doesn't want to talk about it. If her earlier statement is true, and he was concerned on their walk about Jodie and cut it short, how come she's only just finding out from the radio now that Jodie is missing? Trying to make John's accounts make sense with everyone else's makes my brain fucking hurt. It can't be done. And I'm also convinced that LaDonna Woodford is lying for him for some reason. I'm not saying that either LaDonna or John have done anything illegal. It's just a bit odd, and I can't make all the accounts make sense. LaDonna has also said that when she arrived at John's place, not only would he not let her into his house, but that he looked, quote, like hell, end quote. She asked him if he was okay, and he told her that he was tired from having Jodie come over till 10.30pm the night before. I like getting me an early night. People that know me in real life will know that my favourite thing is to be in bed by half nine with a cup of hot chocolate, but even I don't look like hell if I have a late one till half ten. If I'd been up at 3am to abduct someone in a parking lot, gone back home, pretended to be asleep when called at six, and then having to feign shock and awe later that morning when calling around places to find out why my friend I was obsessed with mysteriously went missing, I'd probably look like hell then. To finish off talking about John Van Syce, Two separate grand juries have convened, but failed to indict John Van Syce. They took his fingerprints and palm prints, but they didn't match the palm print found on Jodie's car. The police have never arrested him. The fact that grand juries haven't passed down an indictment is telling. The police clearly have nothing except circumstantial evidence and his weird behaviour. He announced that he passed a polygraph test, the police have never confirmed that he passed it, by the way. He just said he did. And he was so pleased with himself that he threw a keg party afterwards to celebrate. So your amazingly close best friend who is like a daughter to you that you've only known for eight months and you named your boat after and you're madly in love with goes missing, never to be seen again. Everyone thinks that you murdered her and you had to take a polygraph, which must have been really traumatic and intimidating being in a police station. And you pass it. 
And instead of like carrying on with your grief or feeling like just relieved that it's over, you are so overjoyed and smug that you throw a keg party. It's, ugh, I, mm, anyway. Something that I found super interesting, and a lot of people find super interesting, is that in 2017, and for every year, for the next five years, including this year, a search warrant will be executed for the GPS data on John's vehicles, and then it's sealed again, making the records inaccessible to the public. So, The cars that John owns now were made long after 1995, and it's very unlikely that they could have a direct connection themselves to Jodie's abduction. So, why are the police investigating the GPS data for his current cars? Speculation is that police suspect that he's visiting a memorial or burial site, and the police want to check his locations to see if they can find anything there. The fact that they keep getting the warrants every year show that even now, they still think he knows something he's not letting on. The warrants being sealed each time means that the public can't access the information related to probable cause. It's likely the police have some information the public doesn't have access to, which explains why the warrants are being served on the vehicles and why grand juries could be called. We don't know what this information is. It's unlikely to be physical evidence tying into the crime scene, as if there was physical proof like DNA, it would be much easier to charge him. Whatever this probable cause is, is likely to be some other kind of circumstantial evidence. So maybe it's a statement he made to the police which is proven to be a lie, or maybe a witness statement from someone who doesn't want to be publicly revealed. I'm also really sorry if my coverage of John Van Sys has been all over the place. His versions of events is really confusing and messy and I've tried my best. However interesting all of that was, John Van Sys is not the only suspect that caught police's attention in regards to Jodie's disappearance. In lots of coverage of this case, people bring up a guy called Tony Jackson and he's a serial rapist who was living incredibly close to Jodie at the time she went missing. Tony Jackson was born in Chicago in 1974. He was athletic and he got a scholarship to college through his talent playing basketball. He dropped out of college in Forest City, however, in 1995. And it's during this time that he was living right by Jodie Husentrude. His apartment was only two blocks away from the KIMT television station where Jodie worked and only a mile away from her apartment. But could Tony Jackson have ever met Jodie? Well, in that small town, yes. Yes, he very easily could have. He worked at Perkins Restaurant, which we know Jodie used to go to because she said multiple times on live TV that she enjoyed eating there. It's very possible that Jackson saw her as a customer at work and recognised her from TV. There is also a witness who talked to the police, telling them that they know Jackson met Jodie because they were there when it happened. This anonymous witness states that Jackson asked him to go with him to Southbridge Lounge, a bar in Mason City. Jackson showed up dressed up nicely with an empty briefcase. The witness said he made a beeline straight for Jodie at the bar and talked to her for quite a while before leaving again. Jackson seemed to know Jodie would be at the bar, not necessarily because he'd arranged it with her, but because it was somewhere that she liked to go. A female witness who got to know Tony Jackson said that she heard about this encounter from him. Jackson told his female friend that he met Jodie at the Southbridge Lounge. We're assuming he's talking about the first encounter, but maybe he did meet her there more than once. Jackson's first known attack happened a little over a year and a half since Jodie went missing. In February 1997, at about 3.30 in the morning, he carjacked a woman. He would only get linked to this crime through DNA years later, but at the time he was able to get away with it. It was only 10 weeks later when he attacked someone else, and two weeks after that he went on what can only be referred to as a spree. If you think it's worth noting that he attacks in the early hours of the morning, you're not alone. As a matter of fact, the police pulled him over when he was cruising around St. Paul with his headlights off at 3.30am, and they found what is essentially a rape kit in his car. They didn't arrest someone for having rope, handcuffs, and other dodgy items, but they did book him for unlawful possession of a handgun, 
He was able to post bail and he avoided any long-term trouble. This is fucking terrible because three days after this, he committed his final rape. He was stupid or arrogant enough to attack someone he knew. One of his employees at the restaurant he managed caught his eye and he followed her home, broke into her house and raped her. The thing is, this woman was not an idiot. She recognised him. He was dragged into the police station and interrogated. In this clip of his interview, you can see where he slips up. He uses the woman's name, and this confirms what the police already know. His victim's awareness got him caught, and it only made it worse for Jackson that they found one of his fingerprints at the scene. He still tried to deny it as much as possible, though. In the interview, when they accuse him of the rape, he says, quote, Why is she still living? End quote. This obviously implies that if he were to rape someone, he would also kill them so they couldn't talk. Has he done this before? Was his first crime a murder? The police later were able to test DNA found at the scene and it matched Jackson. From jail, in calls to his family and friends, he would make suspicious statements and he would mention Jodie Husentrude, actually being the one himself to bring her up. The thing is, the police have cleared Tony Jackson of any involvement. They said the evidence just doesn't line up. This wasn't enough for fine Jody journalist Caroline Lowe. She had a feeling that there was more to Tony Jackson than what was on the surface, and she wanted to dig a little deeper into the serial rapist's background. She discovered where he lived at the time Jody went missing, and it was like a light bulb moment. Honestly, two blocks from her work. Two blocks. Like, in terms of how long it would take to walk to her place of work from where he lived, we're talking a couple of minutes. And that's only a mile from her house. It's nuts. It's a hell of a coincidence. So anyway, Caroline Lowe got into this and she also realised that the women he dated and lived with actually looked physically very like Jodie and that he was abusive. I've got a little timeline here, so let's get into this. 22nd of June, five days before Jodie went missing. Jackson fights with his girlfriend, who looks like Jodie, and she leaves him. 25th of June, two days before Jodie went missing. Jackson buys a new car, as his girlfriend took theirs. 26th of June, one day before Jodie went missing. Jackson leaves work early, as he got hurt at work and got crutches from hospital. The next 24 hours, Jodie is taken and Tony Jackson's whereabouts are unknown. 28th of June, one day after Jody goes missing. He unexpectedly drops in with his probation officer. This is not normal. The 29th of June, he does the same thing again, which is super not normal. 5th of July, two weeks later, he loses his job. Got something on his mind, maybe? A couple of days later, his girlfriend comes back, and he still treats her like shit. The 11th of July, the dealership wants the car back because he's missing payments because he doesn't have a fucking job anymore. Caroline Lowe actually found the dealership and talked to the owner who dug out some old records, and it turns out that Tony Jackson actually put 500 miles on that fucking car, and this is a lot of miles for someone who lives in a small town over just a two-week period. At this point, Caroline told the police, who visited Jackson in jail and had a little chat with him. Caroline herself was actually able to talk with him too, and Jackson told her that he had never even met Jodie, and this is completely different from what he had told his buddies before he ended up in prison. One of his ex-cellmates came forward to tell Caroline that Tony Jackson talked while in prison. Not only did he talk, but he bragged. He would brag about killing a news anchor, and eventually he actually made up a little rap about it, which the cellmate recited. A rap. He wrote a rap about, I hate this guy. So the rap mentions Tiffin, piles of silage and a grave road. Tiffin is a small town about three hours away from Mason City, which would actually tie up really well with the mileage on the car. And Jackson used to play basketball in Tiffin, which would account for why he's familiar with it. Caroline thought that this might mean that Jodie is located in or near a silo, possibly by a graveyard. And, as coincidence would have it, there's an area of farmland that matches up with this description pretty perfectly. It's very quiet and isolated, and it was empty at the time Jodie went missing. 
Cadaver dogs have searched there and actually alerted, but nothing was conclusively found. It frustrated a lot of people that more thorough searches haven't been carried out here, but investigators just don't think that Tony Jackson is the guy. And I can't completely blame them. In the attacks he's known to do, he has a very specific MO. Yes, he gets people early in the morning, and there's been a couple of times when he's carjacked someone, so as they've been in their car or been going to their car, he's got in and stolen the car with them. But a lot of things don't line up. So for one thing, he would leave his victims alive. And if he'd successfully avoided detection by killing and hiding a victim, Jody, why would he then deviate from that later on? He also broke into people's homes and attacked them on their turf, but he never abducted someone in his car or took them somewhere else. He did carjack one victim, like I said, his first one, in her own car, and Jody's car was still left there, and then it was after that that he started breaking into people's houses. Another suspect who comes up a lot is a real piece of shit called Thomas Corsgadden. He's a horrible guy who was classified as a suspect in Jodie's case. He's a convicted sex offender who attacked his own daughter when she was only a very young child. Alicia has spoken out about her father and said on the Find Jodie podcast that she thinks her father is involved in Jodie's disappearance. He was a fan of Jodie at home and would refer to her as, quote, my girl when she came on TV, which just makes me want to fucking vomit. And she has a memory of Thomas trying to get tickets to a TV show filmed at KIMT, and when he couldn't, he was super pissed about it. We don't know if this TV show had Jodie on it or not. Thomas also interestingly drove a light-coloured Ford Econoline van, which is exactly the model that was seen being super fucking suspicious the morning that Jodie went missing. This van comes up a lot in his case, it's a big part of his MO and we'll get into it soon, but if you're thinking of like a traditional stereotypical creeper van, you are thinking of exactly the right thing. After he already got sent to jail for unrelated sex crimes, because this guy just commits horrible sex crimes left, right and centre, court agents were quite interested in his whereabouts in June 1995 as they had suspicions about Jody. They asked him about the time he spent in Mason City, as he claimed to travel there quite a lot for work. When asked, he simply looked at them with a weird little smile and said, quote, Jodie Hoosentrude, end quote. The agents asked Corsgarden if she was still alive, and he kept his weird little smile up and said, quote, no, she's dead, end quote. Now, this is fucking weird, but he clearly loves a power play, so is he just doing this for attention and to fuck with people? But why was this piece of shit in jail in the first place? So, like I said, he got caught for unrelated sex crimes, he assaulted his own daughter, who has since been super vocal about the crimes her father has committed, he was convicted of burglary, assault, sexual assault, and peeping into people's windows. Someone who does this sort of thing, especially the window peeping, would also be likely to commit stalking type behaviour, like what happened to Jodie with like the phone calls. The thing is, his palm print didn't match the one found on Jodie's car, and he also took a polygraph, which nothing came of. You can't always trust the results of a polygraph, but it is interesting and it's worth mentioning anyway. So the van. The van was a dodgy sex van. It had a gross, dirty mattress in the back. He would cruise for sex workers and they would have to work in his van. The whole thing just sounds terrible and disgusting and I hate it. Another interesting thing about this van is that the police got a warrant to search it before he was arrested and found nothing that could link him to Jody. Another interesting thing about this van is that it was mysteriously destroyed in a fire. So, within months of Jody's disappearance, he gives the van to a buddy, and he's like, hey buddy, they may or may not be evidence of sexual activity in this van. Then the van mysteriously caught on fire and was destroyed. I like to think, in an ideal world, that this mate of his was so grossed out that the only solution to the grossness was to burn the van to the ground, but a more likely option is that his friend was in cahoots to help him destroy evidence of other sex crimes, whether against Jody or whether against the sex workers that he had in his van. His ex-wife, Alicia's mother, firmly believes that he is guilty for other crimes that he's never been tied to, and Alicia herself believes that her father had something to do with what happened to Jody. 
Despite these two suspects, who are clearly both terrible people and 100% capable of committing this horrible crime, police are still making it clear that they really only have one person in mind. The fact that after all this time, they were able to get warrants on John's car's GPS data, and they keep resealing them every year, shows us that they have something that the general public doesn't have access to, and they don't want us to have access to it. Listening to John Van Syce in interviews, the way he talks about Jody sets off people's creep alarms. John was clearly, so clearly, more into her than he claimed. Plus, remember back to the first episode when Jodie's friend recalls that she was concerned John tried to date rape her. Finally, the timelines. John claimed to have two series of interaction around the time that Jodie went missing, and neither of them makes sense. He told various people that Jodie came to his place the night before, yet she made a phone call from in her apartment that makes that story look super unlikely. Then you've got the pounding on the door, I know you're in there. John was possessive and he hated Jodie turning him down. Then in the morning, witnesses give different accounts of his movements, but even his friend who keeps trying to give him an alibi said that he looked like hell and wouldn't let her inside. Sometimes the simplest explanation is the right one. It's quite a common theory that he wanted her to come over the night before and she said no as she was tired from the golf tournament and had to be up early for work and he came over furious. He stayed up all night angry, then went to her apartment when she was due to leave for work. He grabbed her, and she's never been seen since. He looked like shit the next day because he was up all night, and knew before anyone else that she was missing from work, which is why he called the station at quarter past seven, and knew at 8am when he frantically got to her apartment that she wouldn't be there. The thing is, having said all that, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Jodie was being stalked by more than one person. It could come out that it's someone who's never been on police's radar, someone nobody suspects. This is one of those cases where it genuinely seems unlikely that it's ever going to be solved. But lots of cases lately have had resolutions when they seemed impossible. And as the team at Find Jody says, someone knows something. I can only hope that something new comes out which is able to solve this mystery and bring Jody home to her loved ones. And that's all I have. There isn't anything else, and yeah, we're still waiting to find out what happened to Jodie. Um, out of the three suspects that I've discussed, it could be that none of them had anything to do with Jodie's disappearance. It could be some random person that has never come up. It could be that maybe the palm print will end up getting a match one day. It could be that that hair that police have been really quiet about, maybe one day we'll find some familial DNA like what happened with the Golden State Killer, and it'll lead us to someone who has just kept their head down and not had anything to do with it ever since. We don't know. But the fact that there are three really suspicious people who all seem kind of like it might be possible, it just shows how many people are around all the time that you can't trust. And I know I've said it multiple times over the last two parts, but 12 paces. She was outside for 12 paces and she's never been seen again. And if you're walking around listening to this, if you're out somewhere, even if you're like at your desk at work, whatever you're doing right now, just stop what you're doing and count out 12 paces and then stop and look back at where you started. And it's not far, but that's that's how far she went when she got taken. And there are so many people it could have been. And it's terrifying to just think that there are weirdos all around us and you just can't be careful enough. You just can't be safe enough. So if you go running, don't don't publicise where you go jogging. If you have a running route that you take every day, don't put it on Instagram, don't put it online because people can see it and people might follow you. You have to be careful. Um don't talk to strangers. Fucking don't talk to strangers. If you want to make friends, there's ways to do it without talking to people who come up to you and want to be your friend. Just, just be safe. Be, be a bit mean. And, you know, I had a guy, I was waiting for the bus home, um, after a really long day 
the other day and I had my earpods in. I was quite clearly, I was, I was listening to a true crime podcast and I was quite clearly exhausted and I wasn't looking, I, I didn't even look good. I looked like shit. I was knackered. And this guy came up to me and started trying to talk to me and he was like, oh, are you from around here? So I took out one of my, um, earbuds because I thought maybe he needs directions, maybe he's lost. And I was like, eh. And he was like, oh, you from around here? Do you want to be friends? And I was like, oh God, here we go. So I literally, without smiling, usually I'm really polite and I'm kind of nice. And But I was just like, fuck this. I have I have not got the, the mental space. And I popped my little earbud back in and I sort of didn't smile or anything. I kept a very neutral, exhausted face. And I sort of glared at him a bit. And then I could hear him over my podcast saying like, oh, do you have Instagram? And I just said, no. And then I looked away from him. And he was like, are you single? And it's like, get the fuck away from me. Why Why are you talking to me? And it's just, yeah, when you're a woman or a female presenting person, you do have to be extra careful. Because, like, this guy, like, this just happened to me a few days ago. This kind of thing happens all the time. And it's just the fact that people can't take no. People can't take disinterest. They just keep trying. And people will... Some people just feel like they are entitled to your time or your kindness or your politeness and you don't have to give it. Jodie seemed like she gave her time and her kindness to everyone and people will take advantage of that and it's terrible that you can't be nice to everyone but you can't and 12 paces. So that's all I've got to say and I hope that not that you enjoy listening to it because really who enjoys listening to this kind of thing but I hope that in the way that people who absorb this kind of media in the way that we enjoy for want of a better word to listen to it I hope that you enjoyed my telling of it I hope that you learned something new about Jodie um I hope that you go and listen to Scott Fuller's podcast I hope that you look at the Find Jodie website and look at all the work they've done because it's amazing and I hope that you listen to me talk to you next time about something terrible. I already have a case lined up. Um, I've made my notes. I just need to make my notes into a script and then I can get it sorted out. And I hope whatever you're doing, you're having a gorgeous day. And thank you for being here with me. So take care. Be safe. Bye-bye.